This is episode 85 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2013 Annual Enrichment Conference with Michael Lawrence. This is session two from Tuesday morning titled The Storyteller's Tools. Because indeed Christ is stronger. Stronger than our sin. Stronger than our despair. Stronger than our weakness. Stronger than Satan. And so though we walk around in these weak bodies, and though we carry on our ministry in great weakness, it is not a weak ministry that we've been given as For Jesus Christ is stronger. Last night I tried to make the case for biblical theology. I wanted to convince you that we should read the Bible a certain way so as not to misread it. Tonight I want to talk about how we do that. What are the tools that we use to actually begin to, to read the Bible as one story, written by one author, with one plot? Now we're not going to be able to look at all the tools that we need. What I want to do tonight is look at one tool, maybe one of the most important ones. And that's the tool of covenants, understanding the way in which the Bible is put together through covenants. Now, at the outset, let me just say that biblical theology assumes that first, you've done the hard work of exegesis. You have done the hard work of trying to understand the author's original intent in any particular text. That, that, that means that you have faithfully employed the grammatical historical method, a method that seeks to read out of a text the meaning of the words on the page as the expressed mind, the, the expressed intent of the author. It, it means paying attention to things like immediate text, context. It means paying attention to things like genre. So, so I want to just affirm, in case anybody misunderstood me last night, uh, you, you can't get to Jesus unless you first understood what the text means in its original context to its original audience. We, we, we have to start with that original context. But, but what I'm going to suggest to you tonight is that there are three main contexts that we need to be thinking about. There's that, there's that immediate textual context. So think about 1 Samuel 17, the example I gave last night. I mean, David was a real person, and he really had been anointed as king, though nobody knew it, and he really did show up on that battlefield, and he really did have a battle with Goliath, and those historical details and that original historical event really matters. Because if that's not true, and if we don't understand what was going on there, we can't even begin to move on to the larger covenantal or even the larger canonical context. This isn't make-believe. This isn't fairy tale. We're not just coming up with creative stories that get us to Jesus. We are doing hard work in the text. But having understood the text in its original context, that would be the first context. There are two other contexts that I want to introduce to you tonight and think a little bit more about, and covenants are going to help us. And, and the second context that we need to think about is is the covenantal context, what we refer to as covenantal epochs. I'm going to try to say that word as many times as possible. Epoch, because it's such a fun word to say. E-P-O-C-H, epoch. It means a period of time. 
And then there's that, that final context that I talked about last night, the canonical context, the context of the whole story. I want to start with a crucial but overlooked truth as we get into this. And that is this. Unless God tells us who he is and what he's doing and what it means that he's doing what he's doing, we're in the dark. We haven't a clue. We, we simply cannot start with ourselves and intuit our way to God and what he's like and who he is and what he's doing. That, that's, that's the project of, of theological liberalism. Theological liberalism assumes we can start with man and figure out what God is like. God must be a lot like us. Nor, nor can we simply start with creation and from creation work our way to the fullness of God and who he is and what he's done. That's really the great project of Roman Catholic natural theology. That, that we can start with the created order and, and figure out everything we need to know about God almost. Now, we're, we're Protestants. We, we understand that unless God reveals himself to us, we are utterly in the dark. God must reveal himself to us, which means that the Bible is necessarily self-revelation of God. It is not a record of other people's religious experiences that we can take inspiration from. No, it is fundamentally an act of divine condescension. God coming down and, and humbling himself, as it were, to use the, the, the humble thing that is human language, to, to reveal himself actually through words, to reveal himself through the humble thing that is human history, and to use those things to tell us who he is. One of the most important expressions, I think, of that divine condescension is the covenant. It's also one of the most important concepts to grasp if we're going to be able to figure out how to put the whole story together. All right, now I want you to follow me here. This is going to get a little technical. So I'm like warning you. But now that you're warned, you're prepared. Right? In the ancient Near East, in the, the late second millennium BC, the time of Abraham and Moses, nation states, well, there weren't really nation states at that point, there were empires. Empires and small empires uh, the, the relationships between those, 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 those countries were governed by treaties. And those treaties were, were, would be treaties between a, a great king, big king, and a, a lesser king, maybe a, a much weaker king. I mean, he was really a king, but, but he wasn't much. They were called vassal kings. And, and these, these treaties between the big kings and the little kings, the great kings and the vassal kings, took a very specific form. They took the form of what we now call covenants, in which the great king would promise his protection and his blessing and his help and his constant presence and support for that little king, that vassal king, in return for the vassal king's absolute loyalty and obedience. And it basically worked like this. So long as the vassal king obeys, he enjoys the great king's favor. But should the little king, that, that vassal king, break the terms of the covenant, then, then the great king made a promise, and that promise was swift and final judgment. And what's more, the, the vassal king stood in the covenant as, as a mediator 
as, as a representative for his entire people. So his obedience or his disobedience didn't just affect him, it actually affected everybody that stood under him as their federal head, as their representative. Now these, these, these treaties, these covenants were often written down. In fact, we've got lots of them, tons of them. We've got so many of them that we know that they took a fairly standard form. And it basically went like this. It began with a preamble. The great king would identify who he is as the author of the covenant. And then what would follow after that preamble was a very brief kind of historical prologue that would outline what the great king had already done for the little king, the vassal king. And that was kind of serving as the foundation now for the vassal's obedience. What came after that then were what we call the stipulations of the covenant, the requirements of the covenant. And they would first be given in summary form and then in all of their glorious detailed form. What was expected of the vassal. After the stipulations, there was often something called a, what we call a document clause, a, a paragraph that, that would explain where the copies, and there would always be two, where the copies of, of the, this tree were to be kept. And, and basically where they were to be kept would be, would be one would be kept in the temple of the god of the great king, and the other would be kept in the temple of the god of the vassal king, because the gods themselves were called to be witnesses to the covenant. There would also be usually something that would state how often the, the little king had to pull out the covenant and read it out loud, read it to his sons, read it to his people, kind of renewing and reaffirming the covenants. The witnesses would be called. Finally, the covenant would conclude with a list of all the blessings that would come to the little king should he obey, and a list of all the curses that would come should he break the covenant. That's what these covenants look like. They almost always followed this standard pattern. And in the providence of God, who is the Lord of history, who knew exactly when this kind of covenant form would be invented and would become quite prominent and widely known, in the providence of God, Moses was inspired to write the first five books of the Old Testament at just this point, when this covenantal structure was known and recognized by everybody. You see what's going on? Condescension is what's going on. In, in condescension to our own understanding, God uses a very human structure to reveal to us what his relationship with us is like. He is the great king. And we, who were made in his image, made to, to rule over the earth as his vice regents, we are the lesser kings, the, the vassal kings to the great king of heaven. And I want you to listen now, given, given what I've just explained to you. I want you to listen as I read to you from Exodus chapter 20, just the first few verses. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. Preamble, identification. <coughs> Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Historical prologue, see what I've already done? This is the basis on what I'm about to say next. You shall have no other gods before me. Stipulation number one. Requirement number one. And of course, if I kept reading, what we would get in the rest of the Ten Commandments is the summary of the covenant stipulations, the covenant requirements. When you move on then into Exodus 21 to 23, you get actually all the details. 
And then if, if you're following along, you can flip over to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, just beginning in, in verse 1. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. What's going on there? Well, a number of things are going on there, but one of the things that you should have noticed is the public reading of the covenant. With God himself called as witness. If, if, we, if we went on, you could flip over to, to uh, Exodus chapter 25, verse 21, and there you get the document clause. Where, where are the copies of the covenant to be placed? Well, they should be placed in the temple of the great king and in the temple of the lesser king, but we're talking about God. So it's one and the same thing, right? There's only one place for the covenant to go, into the ark in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, eventually in the temple. Because the Holy of Holies is both the temple of Israel, but it's also the throne room of God. But where are the blessings and curses? Well, in fact, Israel breaks the covenant before they ever have a chance to recite them. We don't finally get the blessings and the curses of the covenant and so the covenant is being renewed on the border of the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. Now the Mosaic covenant is not the only place where we see this structure, but I've taken a little bit of time to show it to you here so that, that you'll appreciate something about covenants. A, a covenant is not merely a contract. It's not even simply a, a, a promise the way we understand promises. A covenant is a bond that establishes an all-encompassing relationship. It's not merely a financial obligation. It's not merely a military treaty. It is a claim on someone's total loyalty and allegiance. It has an authority structure to it. It has ongoing obligations. It brings with it blessings. It threatens curses, and what's more, it's generational. In the Old Testament, to enter into a covenant was not just to obligate yourself, it was to obligate your descendants. And not only was a covenant written out, it was also cut. In, in, in fact, literally, the, the, the term that the Old Testament uses to make a covenant is to cut a covenant. That's because all, all, almost always, 
that the making of a covenant involved the shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood was both a, a sign and a seal of the covenant. So, so as we just read there in, in Exodus 24, Moses sacrificed young bulls. He, he took their blood and he sprinkled it on both the altar and on the people as the blood of the covenant. And what's going on there? In the ancient Near East, not only would animals be sacrificed when a, when a covenant was being formed, they would often be mutilated. They would, they would be torn in two. Sometimes they would have one of, their, one of their limbs ripped off and shoved down their throats. Very graphic, very visual. Why were they doing this? Well, it was to be a sign of what would happen to the vassal king, the, the, the lesser king, and his people should they break the covenant. It was essentially a, you know, a statement of you know, what was done to those animals, let it be done to me and my people if I break this covenant. This has led Palmer Robertson, who's done some great writing on covenants, to say a covenant is not simply a bond, it's a bond in blood. A commitment to loyalty and allegiance that is secured with the life of the covenant mediator, the, the vassal king himself. Now, now, he himself doesn't give his life, but that animal gets sacrificed vicariously. It gets sacrificed as if it's him. And saying, let this be done to him if the covenant is broken. Now, I, I want to just pause here and, and, and apply this just a little bit, because we talk about covenant a lot here in CB Northwest. We talk about being a, a, a covenant community, a, a family of churches. And I think there's some incredibly important things to learn, but also some mistakes that we don't want to make when we use this language of covenant to describe ourselves, because it's deeply biblical language. We learn a lot about what a covenant is. And just to draw from, from our own identity language, right? Uh, we are a covenant community. That means we are not an organization. We're not a denomination. We're not finally a, a structure or a hierarchy. We are a set of relationships. Because that's what a covenant does. It brings two parties into relationship. And, and those relationships are characterized by dependence on one another, by responsibility for one another, and by accountability to one another. It's, it's a total relationship. We're, we're, we're talking about the language of loyalty, but not party spirit loyalty, not my favorite fan team loyalty, but the loyalty of a family one member of the family to another member of the family. I think we can learn a lot about what that looks like by looking at these biblical covenants, because that's what covenants were all about, creating a relationship that had a total claim on your loyalty and allegiance. But there's one mistake we don't want to make. We can move, in many ways, from, from Scripture to understanding what our covenant relationships look like. But... But we don't actually want to move from what our covenant relationships look like back to trying to understand what a biblical covenant looks like. Because there's one important difference between our covenant relationships and the covenants we see in Scripture. Our covenant relationships are voluntary. We voluntarily enter into this covenant family. We would hate to see it, but if a church decides to leave our covenant family, uh, they're free to do so. Right? There, there, there are no terrible consequences. We're not going to call down curses. 
on a church should they leave? We, we, okay, we thought about it. <laughs> but we don't do it, right? Because, because, because this is a voluntary set of relationships that we've entered into. Not so in biblical covenants. The kind of relationship that God enters into, you might call a command relationship, right? The great king condescends to enter into a relationship with us. And we submit to it. There is nothing finally voluntary about the covenants of the Bible. And, and our, we, we don't come to God like we come to one another as, as peers. No, he comes to us. And he sovereignly enters into a relationship with us. And we submit to that relationship. Which is why it is entirely appropriate for us as ministers of the gospel to command people to repent and believe. To not merely invite them, but to say to them, the God of the universe commands your allegiance. And so we should obey the gospel, not merely receive it, as if it's, you know, something you can take or leave. All right. If that's the basic structure of the covenant, as we find it in the Bible, I want to introduce one more important variation or, or distinction. Sometimes, out of the, the greatness of his heart in the ancient Near East, a great king would decide to enter into a covenant relationship that was essentially a covenant of grant, a covenant of, of promise. In this kind of covenant, there were no conditions, no, no terms that the vassal had to keep, no obey and I'll bless you, disobey and I'll curse you. Instead, in this kind of covenant relationship, the great king would, would simply stake himself, his word, his resources, as a guarantor of the covenant blessings that he was just giving as a free gift to the other party in the covenant. In contrast to the kind of standard covenant of works, do this and you live, don't do this and you die, we would call this kind of covenant a covenant of grace, a covenant of gift. Now in the ancient Near East, the, the context in which you'd most typically see this kind of covenant is, is when a great king would grant an inalienable inheritance, usually a piece of land, to a valiant warrior or, or a faithful servant. And we see this kind of covenant in the Old Testament as well. Flip, flip over to, to Genesis chapter uh, 15. Genesis 15. Starting in, in verse 9. God is meeting with Abram. And in verse 9, the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him. Cut them in two, there's that tearing in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. He just gives it to him. He just makes a promise. So we've got two kinds of covenants. Covenants of works, covenants of grace. Both follow the same sort of pattern. The difference lies in who takes the oath. Who undertakes to suffer the curses should the covenant be broken? Now, th there are lots of examples of covenants that we could go to in, in the Old Testament throughout the Bible. I, I want to identify seven. I wish I could take time to unpack them. Uh, if you want to see me do that, you can. It's, it's in the book, you know, which, you, which you're going to get a copy of tonight. Uh, I just want to briefly identify what I think are the are seven major covenants. Now, I, some of you will be surprised at some of the ones that maybe that I list. I'm, I'm following the old hermeneutical law that if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, even if the word duck is never used, okay? So I'm not saying there are no other covenants, and the word covenant is not always used in relation to all of these, but I think that's what we're looking at here. These are all significant in their own right, but they're also significant because this is how God stitches together the story of the Bible. It, it begins, as I'm sure you expect, or where I think I'm going to start, with the covenant of works made with Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, of course, there's, there's no word covenant there. But there is a promise, implicit, of, of confirmation in eternal sin, sinless life if Adam obeys. Of course, there's, there's a curse as well. If you disobey the one stipulation, there was only one, if you disobey the one stipulation, there will be, there will be death. And there's a probationary test. There's a, there's a work to be performed. It wasn't going to be indefinite. But for some period of time, this test was set for Adam. And of course, the test comes in Genesis 3. It's failed. He disobeys. The covenant is broken. The curses follow immediately. Covenant of works with Adam. Uh, a second covenant, I would call the covenant of redemption. I think it is actually implied in Genesis 3.15, but it takes the rest of the Bible to work it out. But it's interesting. Genesis 3.15, in the middle of the curse on the serpent, God, as it were, almost interrupts himself. And he, he starts making promises. And he undertakes on himself certain obligations. I think this is the covenant of grace in seed form in Genesis 3.15. But it will take the rest of the Bible to work it out. Next covenant that we come to in Scripture is the Noahic covenant. Made with Noah and all living creatures. We see it there in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. It is a covenant of grace, but it's a covenant of common grace. It doesn't save anyone, but it does prevent further destruction. A unilateral promise on God's part so that there is a field for the covenant of redemption to run on. Then we come to the Abrahamic covenant, which I just read, part of Genesis 15. Made with Abraham and his seed. It's a covenant of grace, a, a promise of blessing for a, a people of God in God's place under God's rule. Then we come to the Mosaic covenant which is laid out, as we saw in, in Exodus 20 to 25, and then told again, republished in Deuteronomy. A covenant of works, I think. 
made with the people of Israel. And the reason I think it's a covenant of works, and you may disagree with me, but who takes on the curses? Who takes the oath? It's, it's the people, not God. The, the mediator of that covenant, first Moses, then, then the judges after him, ultimately the kings take up as, as mediators of this Mosaic covenant. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel, verse 7, I mean chapter 7, a, a covenant of grace, just a, a, a promise to David that, that his son will always sit on the throne of Israel, that is the people of God. And then the new covenant, which is described for us in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, and who Jesus says he himself fulfills, who is both the covenant mediator and the guarantor of the covenant through his own blood. This is the language he uses in Matthew 26, verses 27 to 30. Now, if these are the major covenants of the Bible, what we need to recognize as we look at them is that when we look at the covenants, we're not looking at historical oddities. We are looking at the revelation of God, of how in history he has decided to relate, to come into relationship with his people. And when we see that, we realize that right away, one of the most important questions that we've got to answer as we read this one story is, is how do the various covenants relate to each other as the story of God's relationship with his people unfolds? We understand, too, that it's going to be pretty important to, to, to know which covenant we stand under so that we don't read our covenant situation wrongly back into a previous covenant situation, nor do we wrongly read a previous covenant situation into ours. Now, to help avoid that error, one of the things that we need to realize, then, is beyond the immediate context of any text, we need to understand that text in its covenantal context, its epoch. There, I said it again. When we, when we begin to do this, we, we begin to protect ourselves from misinterpretation, and we begin to put the story of the Bible together. So think back to Genesis 15, what I, what I just read, the story of God's covenant with Abraham. It, we, we could just think about it in terms of its immediate context, interpreted solely in terms of what God is doing with Abraham. And actually, we must do that first. But, but when we back up just a little bit, we realize that actually the call and the covenant with Abraham marks a real turning point in the story of the Bible. And everything that follows Genesis 15 is building on and relating to what happened right there. From Genesis 12 to Exodus 19, the entire narrative of Scripture in that section is revolving around understanding how God's faithful, how he is faithful to that promise. But then all of a sudden, in Exodus chapter 20, a new epoch dawns. God's people are now a nation. They are, they are defined by the Exodus events, and their relationship with God is put on a, on a new footing. And it's outlined in a new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's not that the Abrahamic covenant is gone. It's not that it's revoked. But something new has happened. A new development in the story has occurred. And subsequent stages of the story now have to take this, this new epoch into account. Now, in pointing out different epochs defined by different covenants, 
that have different terms, I am not saying, as kind of old school dispensationalism used to say, that God saved people different ways at different times. There was a time when people were saved by works, and now they're saved by grace. That's not what I'm saying. God is the same. God has never changed. He has always and only saved people one way, and that is by grace through faith and the promises he's revealed up to that point in time. But what I do mean to say is that God unfolds the revelation of this salvation over time. It, it develops like, like a seed grows into a tree. And just like a seed grows into a tree, sometimes the development is, is unexpected, right? You can't look at an acorn and know just by looking at an acorn what an oak tree is going to look like. But they're organically related. So it is with the development of the covenants. I'll give you a quick example. Leviticus 17. This is why this matters. Leviticus 17 forbids offering sacrifices anywhere but at the tent of meeting. And later, of course, that will become the temple, but the point is the same. You couldn't offer sacrifices just anywhere you wanted, just anywhere you happened to be. But Genesis tells us that wherever Abraham went, he built an offer and offered sacrifices. So was Abraham breaking the law? All truth is God's truth. God doesn't change. The law is eternal. Was Abraham breaking the law of Leviticus 17? By the way, where are you offering your sacrifices? You see my point. If we're going to correctly understand the restriction of Leviticus 17, the freedom of Abraham, and our even greater freedom, because we're not even offering sacrifices anymore, we are going to need to understand each passage in its larger epochal context. Abraham was an alien and stranger in the land. He had not yet received the promise but in its fulfillment, but he had the promise. So every time he built an altar, Abraham was basically declaring, this is God's land. You may not know it yet, but I'm declaring on the basis of God's promise, this is God's land. Israel, on the other hand, has come into possession of the land. But it's a land filled with local altars to every local God imaginable. God wants to make very clear to every Israelite that, that each Israelite was part of a single people with a single God who had revealed exactly how and where and when he would be worshipped. And that worship itself would be an act that assembled the people in their unity as a nation of priests, rather than, than fragment and, and disperse them to their various campuses. Did I say that? Towns to worship God wherever and however they see fit. You see, if we're going to understand a text, not only do we need to understand the words, the sentences, the paragraphs in its immediate context, we have got to ask the question, what covenant governs God's people at this point? What epoch is it in? And how does that fit into God's revelation of himself up to that point in time? But if we stop there, unless we're in the New Testament, if we stop there, all we've done is give our people a history lesson. Now, it's an important history lesson. But I didn't want to be a history teacher. 
I want to be a preacher of God's word. I want to be a preacher of Christ. So I want to push on then to one more horizon. The horizon, really, that I introduced last night. The horizon of the, the canon itself, the whole story. But I won't understand the whole story unless I've understood first the immediate context and then in its covenantal, epochal context. Only at that point then can I see how it fits into the whole. From, from Moses to John, the first writer of Scripture to the last writer of Scripture, the conviction of all the biblical authors is that God is faithful. God is faithful. The promises that he makes in one epoch, he fulfills in another. The fulfillment may not look like what we expected, but there is fundamental continuity across the breadth of the story because of God. Because God keeps his promises. God fulfills his word. Now, it's the task of this final horizon of interpretation, this, this final contextual reading, to, to discern how it all fits together. So let's go back to, to Genesis 15, the, the covenant with Abraham. If, if the textual horizon is asking questions like, what's going on with cutting up animals? And what did this mean for Abraham? And if, if the covenantal reading of Genesis 15 is asking questions like, how is this promise fulfilled and kept in the life of Isaac and the life of Jacob and the life of Joseph and, and eventually even in the Exodus itself? Then the canonical context is asking the question, how does this promise in Genesis 15 relate to the new covenant established in Christ's blood? In just what sense are Christians the seed of Abraham? Because that's to whom the promise was given, as Galatians says we are. What does it, what does it mean that we participate in that promise? How does that happen? Should we be expecting an inheritance in Palestine? Maybe the book of Hebrews suggests that the land promises and the rest promises are fulfilled in Christ. What does that mean? Now, I can't answer all of those questions. And actually, I picked that one on purpose because I know it's a, it's a, um, it's a point, actually, on which maybe some of us in this room will disagree. But underneath the disagreement... I want you to see the agreement that we have, that, that we need to answer those questions. And the way we answer those questions is by thinking through how do these covenants relate to each other so that God is proven to be true. It requires other tools to really work all of this out. We would have to talk about promise fulfillment. We would have to talk about the symbolism of typology. We would have to answer questions continuity and discontinuity. But what I really want you to take away tonight is that for most of the Bible, all of the Old Testament and the Gospels, we cannot even begin to think about applying those texts to our lives until we've taken it through the lens of biblical theology. Working on through the covenantal to the canonical context. Jesus Christ may be the mediator of the new covenant, but be assured that he is the Christ of all the covenants. There is simply no way we can understand Jesus and the rest of the New Testament without understanding him in the light of the covenants. Think about how the New Testament presents Jesus to us. Jesus is presented to us as the second Adam. He's presented to us as a second Moses. He's presented to us as a second David. He's presented to us as a second Solomon. 
The salvation that he brought is described as a second exodus or as a return from exile. And the church that he founded is described as a living temple and the Israel of God. Now, how are we going to understand any of those images? How are we going to even begin to know how to apply them if we haven't grappled with them, first in their original context and then ultimately in the canonical context, the story as, the whole, as a whole. And by the same token, when we do, what happens to the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament becomes far more than a chronology that gets us to Jesus. The Old Testament becomes the revelation of Jesus. The God who condescends, who comes down and enters into relationship with his people and has been doing so ever since the beginning. The incarnation in Palestine was but the final and fullest of those condescensions. But in a very real sense, it wasn't the first. And I want to spend the last few minutes just trying to demonstrate how we put all of this together and the difference that it makes as we look at a, at a particular text, as we think about these three horizons of, of interpretation, these three contexts, the text, the epoch, and, and the canon. And, and I want you to turn to Psalm 18. Psalm 18, on first glance, is not about covenants at all. But by the end, I hope you'll see that we cannot even begin to understand what's going on in Psalm 18 without the covenants. Now, I'm going to take the time to read it. It's long, which means I'm going to go over a little bit. But it's God's Word. <laughs> Psalm 18. For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of the song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies, great bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth lay bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. 
I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as dust, born on the wind. I poured them out like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did not know were subject to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. Foreigners cringe before me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who subdues nations under me, who saves me from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From violent men you rescued me. Therefore I will praise you among the nations. O Lord, I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his, and his descendants forever. An amazing song. Lots of favorite verses in here. He makes my, my feet like the feet of a deer. With God's help, I can scale a wall. All sorts of kind of personal favorite verses in this psalm. You're coming to preach this psalm. What are you going to say about it? Well, you've got to do some textual work. You've got to just understand the psalm and the words that are going on. This is poetry. There's incredibly vivid imagery going on here. David is using examples of Hebrew parallelism, parallelism to make his point. But at the end of the day, what, what you realize is that this is a song of thanks. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the introduction lets us know this. This is written late in David's life. His, his enemies have been put down. His throne is secure. And he writes an incredible song of a personal thanksgiving for the deliverance that God gave him. Now, if we stop right there, though, we may be tempted to try to appropriate this psalm indirectly. So, so this then becomes my personal song of, of thanksgiving for, for deliverance. Now, at one level, that, that is true. But what I want to show you as we press on it finally misses the point. Because we want to actually deal with some of the things about this psalm that make us feel uncomfortable. That, that we probably wouldn't just take on personally. And that begins to move us into the epochal context. What, what does this psalm mean? What does it have to say in the covenantal context that it's in? Well, you notice very quickly 
that David draws on the imagery of Sinai, of God coming down in, in, in fire and in darkness and in clouds and with thunder, coming down on Sinai. He draws on the events of the Exodus itself. The valley of the seas are laid bare, a, a clear reference to the crossing of the Red Sea. He draws from, from imagery uh, related to the conquest narrative, and all of that is in verses 6 to 19. Now, is that kind of grandiose? I mean, did, did God really do that? Did, did, did David see that happen? I mean, did he have his own personal Red Sea crossing? Well, you, you, you begin to recognize that in its covenantal context, the king represents the nation. So this is a, a personal prayer of thanksgiving, but it's more than that. David's not just a private citizen in Israel. He is the king of Israel. He represents the nation. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And so he, he borrows from the, the, the imagery of the nation's relationship with God historically to describe what God has done for him. He, he speaks of this in kind of national terms. This also, I think, begins to help us understand the language of covenant faithfulness that you see in verses 20 to 29 that really make us feel uncomfortable and make us think that maybe David believed in salvation by works or something, but that is not what's going on here. Da David is not talking about his own personal sinlessness as an individual. By this time, boy, Bathsheba's already happened, Uriah's already happened. I mean, he knows he's a sinner. No, he's actually speaking as the king. And as the king, he has been faithful to the covenant. This is a covenantal faithfulness that he is speaking of, not a personal sinlessness that he is speaking of. Also, his triumph over his enemies in, in verses 37 to 42, which really make us feel uncomfortable, because if this is just personal, David's really bloodthirsty. But the imagery that he draws there in verses 37 to 42 are patterned after the images of the, of the conquest narrative of Joshua. And faithfulness in the context of the covenant means showing no mercy to God's enemies. Showing mercy to God's enemies was unfaithfulness. Finally, in verses 43 and to, down to the end, we move beyond the Mosaic context to the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. So this is, these are not statements of, of personal pride his throne. But we begin to realize these are statements of his praise for God's faithfulness. This psalm is not just then a song of personal thanksgiving, private thanksgiving. It is a testimony to the covenant faithfulness of God to vindicate his anointed and through that vindication to save his people. And it is that language of unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever, that thrusts us on into the canonical context. For ultimately, this is not even merely, not, not only a, a personal song of thanksgiving, it is not only a song of God's faithfulness to David as the covenant mediator of the Mosaic covenant and the holder of the promises of the Davidic covenant, this is ultimately a song that is filled fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? Who experiences these things, not just figuratively, but literally. 
cords of death literally entangled themselves around Christ's feet. The covenant faithfulness that Jesus Christ fulfilled was not just the, 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 the public representative faithfulness of the king, but the perfect personal obedience of Adam. You see, when we, when we read this psalm, not just in light of David's life, but in light of the entire story of Scripture, we realize that it finds its truest sense not on my lips, and not even on David's lips, but on the lips of Jesus. Jesus is the one who can finally, in the truest sense of every word on the page, sing this song. Because he is the one who both saves his people, God, come down, but also the one who identifies with his people, suffers for his people the pangs of death, but then is vindicated by God and triumphs over all his enemies, Colossians 2, crowned as king of the nations forever. How do you preach this Psalm 18? Not just David's song, though it is. Not just Israel's song, though it is. But Christ's song. And as I listen to Jesus Christ sing this song, I get to know him better. I learn who he is and what he did to come into a relationship with me. Brothers and sisters, is this the way? Is this the way you read your Bible? Beginning with the immediate context, working out to the larger epoch, covenantal context, but not resting until you've gotten to the end of the story. When I was a kid, I loved reading the Old Testament. Sermons were long and boring. The stories were really good. It passed the time. I still love reading the Old Testament because it has great stories. And Jesus leaps out of every single one of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your condescension. We thank you that you would use our language in our political structures to tell us about yourself, to help us understand who you are and what you have done throughout history and ultimately in Jesus Christ to come into covenant relationship with us. Oh Lord, we see that not just our salvation but the revelation of our salvation is grace from beginning to and let us never tire of singing the praise of Jesus Christ.